Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at bluenile.com. And remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Thank you so much for coming. Um, this is the Art Workers Guild, these beautiful surroundings. We've never actually had an event in here before, but I hope to do many. Thanks for finding time in the middle of your working days. Uh, and most of all, thank you to you, Stephen Pinker, uh, who many of you will know already. Um, he is a, a psychologist. He's a professor at uh, Harvard of psychology, a best-selling author of multiple modern classics, uh, including such things as Enlightenment Now and The Better Angels of Our Nature. He is here to talk about his latest book, Rationality, What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, and Why It Matters. So I've got to start with a basic question to put us in the picture. What is rationality? I, I defined it as the use of knowledge to attain a goal, where knowledge, according to the philosopher's standard definition, is justified true belief. That means that rationality is always relative to a goal, and what might seem irrational with respect to one goal might, uh, in fact, be the rational pursuit of some other goal. And the impression I'm sort of summarizing here, having just read your book, the impression is that where many people say, we are fundamentally an irrational species, and they like to complain about that. Although you point out a lot of the foibles and the, the, the pathways we can go in our thinking, you fundamentally seem to feel like we are a rational species. Is that fair? Well, <clears throat> I don't think you can write us off across the board as irrational, because if we were incapable of rationality, who set the standards for rationality against which we could say most humans don't measure up? I mean, it wasn't an advanced race of space aliens. It wasn't you know, gods descended to Earth. It was you know, other human beings. And they uh, laid out the, uh, the rules of logic and probability and statistical decision theory. So someone's rational, and, you know, they're, and they're human. Are they, unless you think they're a superior breed, it's got to be a capability that, that we all have. Uh, and indeed, some of the fallacies, uh, that uh, famous fallacies in statistical reasoning, can uh, be made to go away, or at least be drastically reduced, if you reframe the problem in more mind-friendly terms, if you make the instances more visualizable, more concrete, more familiar from everyday life, uh, and then people don't look as stupid as some of the classical experiments uh, portray them as. And when you think about it, we all, as a species, we have accomplished magnificent feats of rationality, we have figured out how to survive in every ecosystem on Earth, uh, the Arctic and in deserts. And this is even before there was settled civilization with, with writing and formal science and, and the like. Um, and our best science has uh, discovered DNA and the Big Bang and plate tectonics and gotten to the moon. So just saying we're an irrational species just can't explain the full range of, of, uh, of human experience. There's got to be more specific explanations for particular kinds of irrationality, of which, admittedly, there are plenty. It would probably be uncontroversial to say that rationality is a good thing in certain contexts. Um, I guess the, the debate becomes whether it's always the right way to approach life or, or problems. Do you think of it, first of all, in that way that you, at one point you talk about a sort of system one and a system two, do you, do you think of it as two hemispheres or the sort of more irrational versus the intuitive or do you reject that binary altogether? 
Uh, <clears throat> I don't think it's a, it's a binary, but it is a useful distinction. It's, it's uh, one of many contrib uh, contributions of Daniel Kahneman to our understanding of judgment and decision making. Um, system one referring to snap judgments, system two to thinking twice, reasoning it, reasoning it out. Mm. Now, it, you know, just saying that there's number one, there's number two, is you know, not a very you know, deep or neurobiologically satisfying explanation, but it probably does tap into some distinction. Right. So would you say that the, the system two is always the one that we should try to use? We, that should be, we should aspire to be rational in all scenarios as much as possible? Um, <clears throat> pretty much, yeah. I mean, there was a, uh, <laughs> there was a fad in the uh, early 2000s uh, triggered by Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, uh, to say that people overthink things and that your gut feeling turns out to be right. And that turns out to be wrong. Uh, that is, and in fact, has had uh, my, my colleagues in the business school say every you know, business executive just loved that book. It's like, oh, I've, I don't have to think. Um, I, I go, go with my gut and, and, and made disastrous decisions mm. as a result. So there, there, there are some cases where we have a kind of pattern recognition. Certainly, if you're trying to recognize a, a face, if you're trying to steer a car, um, then you really have no choice but to go with your, mm. your system one. If you try to analyze every curve and every contour and say, well, you know, I, I remember Sam, his eye arcs 137 degrees. Mm. You know, that's just not the way to do it. Right. Um, but, but in general, people do better when they think twice, yeah. So let me try and throw a couple of scenarios at you where this might not work so well. So just ordinary real life encounters. Let's say you're hiring someone for a, for a job. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, you could either just entirely go on their CV and on the, the, what, the kind of rational expectation of how they should perform, references and so on, and normally that's a big part of it. But is there not also a, a gut feeling there? Um, oh, there's absolutely a gut from, feeling and it's foolish to act on it. Well, because my, my experience is that, you know, in those social encounters where you're trying to get the measure of another human being, um, actually, the, 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 the rational isn't adequate, and that there well, is something more intuitive. There is the goal of having people that you like to be in the same office with. Um, you just get along, you laugh at the same jokes. But there is a fair amount of research on the predictive value of different hiring criteria. That is, who bombs out of the job who gets, versus who gets promoted. The answer is that the job interview is pretty close to useless in predicting that, and this is a major theme of Kahneman's latest book, Noise, with Cass Sunstein and Olivier Siboney, that we, uh, that the, the kind of thinking that says, well, I, I, you know, uh, I know a good employee when I see one, turns out to be exactly wrong. That is, uh, the, the, uh, the job interview is, when evaluated uh, um, objectively in terms of whether it filters out the people that it should, and the answer is it doesn't. That, that, I don't expect that most uh, universities, companies, and so on are going to abandon the interview. It's just too, we just like them too much. Mm. But objectively- so chemistry then, the, the sort of idea of human to human chemistry is something we should try to banish. I mean, I'm not talking in a, well, in a not, love relationship. You're not, in not in falling in love, but, but in hiring, yeah, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, or at least if you, if, uh, I mean, there is that argument and, and, and Kahneman and Sunstein and other people who study employment practices say that we're really misled by, by interviews. They, they have little predictive value. And of course, there's been a lot of talk of um, bias and prejudice in when we outsource decisions to uh, algorithms. But, you know, there's no bias like human bias. And interviews are a, just an invitation to allow your, your your, your racial, your sexual, your class biases to mm. rule the day. Because a lot of the things that people ask in interviews, like, you know, what sports did you play in college? Those can kind of be class markers, needless to say. And it's mm. one of the reasons why they are less effective than more um, uh, objective measures. Or if there is an interview, it's best off if it's a structured interview with a standard set of questions that you pose to every candidate and uh, a way of classifying the answers. Mm. And, and those circumstances, I think interviews can be better than useless. Okay, let me throw another one at you, Professor. Um, so big life decisions. That's also, 
there are some people who prefer to make them with lists and pros and cons yeah. and try to be rational about them. And there are other people who cannot escape the sense yes. that it's a gut and they just have to go with their gut. I wonder, this might sound a bit meta, but again, I'm talking from personal experience here, which is probably not very scientific. But what I'm pitching here is that can, can we rationally accept yeah. that there's a sort of advantage of having gone along with your gut instinct that might make the feeling of, might change how it would feel afterwards? So in other words, to, to get something wrong that at least you went with your gut feels yeah. better than to get something wrong when you tried to overthink it and went against your gut. Yes, yeah, so there, there's certainly uh, the phenomenon of making decisions <coughs> proactively that you won't regret. Um, the, that uh, <clears throat> the pain of regret can be so aversive that you take the safe course of action so that nothing can happen that, that would make you feel uh, you know, like a, you know, a total idiot after the fact. Um, so uh, certain precautions that we take. So it's a, one example of what uh, Tversky and Kahneman call loss aversion, that we, uh, a purely rational decision maker would weigh the costs and benefits uh, and um, choose the option that has the highest expected utility, namely the uh, costs and benefits weighted by their probabilities. Okay, so you know, what, what could happen? With, what are the chances that it could happen? Multiply the chance by how good or, uh, how good or bad it is, positive or negative, add them all up, take the option that has the, uh, the highest value. Uh, Kahneman and Tversky show that people don't exactly follow that because they give much more weight to the downside than the upside. They'll, uh, you know, if there's a, 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 a bet that they would um, uh, lose a certain amount or gain a certain amount, even if on average every time they play, uh, <clears throat> they would increase the, their earnings. The pain of losing uh, so much offsets the pleasure of winning that people will often avoid gambles that would pay off. And it might be. So there's, there's some of that that, that uh, I think is, is, mm. is relevant to your scenario. There may also be cases where your affective emotional reaction is itself a criterion, such as if, uh, <clears throat> if there's a particular job that takes place in some you know, depressing, windowless, fetid place, and, you, and uh, you have an emotional reaction to that, well, how happy you are in the job is going to depend a lot on your emotional reaction day to day and your emotional reaction to the thought of taking it might be a good predictor of your emotional reaction when you're actually doing it. And there's nothing irrational about factoring in your own emotions. Right. Uh, in fact, quite the contrary, the rationality always is in pursuit of some, uh, some goal and, and that goal depends on, on you know, what you want and how you feel. Mm. I definitely want to come back to that in a, in a political context, but first I thought I'd ask, do you think some people are more rational than others? And do you think you are unusually rational? So I'll answer the, uh, <laughs> the first question. I can answer both questions. So the first question is yes. Uh, and there are um, tests of rationality that are not just the same as tests of intelligence. So these would be uh, tests of some of the uh, kind of a, uh, a compendium of many of the fallacies that have been documented in the literature in cognitive psychology and behavioral economics. The gambler's fallacy, do you think that if a roulette wheel has landed on uh, red 10 times in a row, it's due for a black? The sunk cost fallacy, if you have uh, already watched the first half hour of a movie, do you stay to the end because you've already paid for the ticket and you've already uh, spent that half hour? There's, um, the do you do that? You know, I, I have stopped doing it now that I'm more aware of the sunk cost fallacy. <laughs> but yes, I, I did do that, and I also did even worse is <clears throat> I would, if I start a book, I feel I have to finish it because um, I've already invested so much in it, and that's the sunk cost fallacy. I would sometimes avoid starting a book because once I start, I'm, I'm not allowed to put it down. So um, do you mean that... But now I've, I've unlearned that, though. So are you, are you saying that even Professor Pinker has non-rational... Well, that's, that's, let, let me finish the first question, okay, and I'll get to that question. So the first question... Uh, so if you have a set of tests like that, <clears throat> are you just measuring... You know, is it just another IQ test? The answer is not exactly. That is that although it correlates with IQ, it's an imperfect correlation. So there are plenty of smart people in the sense of 
powerful brains. They can uh, recite strings of digits back, backwards from memory, uh, but they are, are suckers for some of these fallacies. Uh, and conversely, there are some people who may not be, you know, the, the you know the, the sharpest knife in the drawer, but they've got enough sense to avoid the fallacies. So they're correlated just imperfectly. Uh, so we have reason to believe both that people differ in rationality and that it's not just another way of saying some people are smarter than others. Uh, as, as to how rational I am, I'm probably the last person to ask, because one of the deepest kinds of irrationality that is baked into us is that we all think we're perfectly rational, and that only the other guy is irrational. Sometimes called the bias bias, namely everyone else is biased, <laughs> I'm not. Uh, I like to think I am, I aspire to it, but I also recognize in myself certain kinds of irrationality that, are, that I find very hard to uh, extirpate. Uh, having finished your book, I would I get the strong impression that you are a highly rational person. But, uh, <laughs> I, would, but I, 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 I do my best, but uh, those who know me might uh, beg to differ. It's just it's interesting if if some people are more rational than others. Um, if one makes a kind of universal law that rationality is always the best way, uh, are you not sort of prioritizing or preferring some people's way of being? over others. And it was actually interesting, we, we just discussed the interview you did with uh, Start the Week in the BBC earlier this week. Uh, the feminist philosopher Amir Srinivasan from um, Oxford, she suggested that actually some of the history of feminism comes out of intuition before rationality, um, which I would certainly never have offered as an argument, and it gets close to the kind of a, a dangerous idea about differences between men and women and whether men are more rational than women, but I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. What's your response to Professor Srinivasan on that? What, yeah. are, are, we, are we sort of teaching a, a worldview that actually only applies to some people? No, I don't think it applies only to some people. And... Um, and, you know, we take a good historian of ideas and historian of social movements <clears throat> to apportion the causes of, of uh, beneficial social change. Thank you. Thanks. The, the extent to which social movements are driven by charisma, empathy, anger, as opposed to being triggered by rational arguments. I end the book with a chapter that suggests at least um, on a case-by-case -case basis Many movements, including feminism, began with a highly rational argument that uh, accused contemporaries of acting in ways that were inconsistent with values that they professed to hold. Um, and in the case of feminism, the first English feminist, Mary Astell, made a highly rational argument. She basically appropriated John Locke's argument against uh, absolute monarchy and said that why should, uh, why should my choices be constrained by the whims of some guy just because he happens to be the, uh, the sovereign. <clears throat> the, the only legitimate way of regulating behavior is by uh, rules, principles, laws that are justified, stated, and that people can choose to live by, not just what, you know, what some guy on a throne uh, arbitrarily wants or likes. And Mary Astell cleverly took almost his exact words and said, well, if absolute sovereignty doesn't work in a state, why should it work in a family? And uh, if, it, uh, if it doesn't, uh, and if it is appropriate in a family, why not in a state? Why does the man of the house get to impose his arbitrary whims on uh, women uh, if you have arguments why a king shouldn't do it with his subjects? Uh, likewise, Mary Wollstonecraft, a highly cerebral set of arguments of why it was a waste of half of humanity to keep girls uh, unschooled and in the, in the kitchen. Now, you know, I, I don't think that the only um, force behind social change is rational arguments, because people do, you know, they, they take out the pitchforks and the torches, and they, they, they have the marches and the folk songs, and, but the... Um, Often I think the first trigger was, or at least what convinced enough elites, uh, at the very least, to um, make it into a, a movement was a, a rational argument. So the, the, any kind of sense of agenda issue here that, that Amir was sort of hinting at, I felt, 
you would reject that there's no no sense in which there's a, a, a sort of women men. Oh, so in, in terms of the sex difference, yeah. now, now this is one of these um, topsy turvy situations where what used to be intolerably sexist is now mainstream and vice versa. Um, so the idea that you know that, that that women are less rational, well, that was the argument that kept women in the in the kitchen and in, in, in the church and nursery all those years. There, if women you know think too much, then the blood will go to the brain and it'll be sucked out of the uterus and the ovaries, and then they'll be infertile and their uterus will shrivel. I mean, all that 19th century pseudoscience, which uh, just justified the idea that women were less rational than, than men. Uh, I don't know the data from these rationality tests on whether there are sex differences, and I might not repeat them even if I did know them. But I'll, I'll, so I'll just give an intuition here that contrary to the, you know, there is that the sexist stereotype of women is more you know, emotional and flighty, and if anything, if you're going to go by stereotypes, it's the, the men that are the less rational of the species, because most of the classical fallacies of critical thinking are things like appeals to authority, um, the, uh, the use of debating tactics like interrupting, like a loud, low voice, like the cold stare, the primate dominance tactics of intimidation and uh, that, that are, uh, can uh, uh, lead someone to appear to win an argument not based on their merits, but mm. just because they are um, so overbearing, mm. uh, or use dirty tricks like the, uh, the, the appeal to authority. Well, so-and-so has a Nobel Prize, and that's what he thinks. Right. Um, uh, we, we sometimes you know, call these pissing contests when there are two men who engage in it, or mansplaining when a, uh, a man um, uses kind of tactics of conversational dominance to uh, explain to a woman something that she knows much better than him. So if anything, men are potentially less rational. Uh, uh, yes, uh, it, it's quite, con quite conceivable. Let me use that opportunity to segue into politics, because um, <laughs> there's, there's one case study of this that seems extremely relevant to this book and this topic, which is the 2016 election between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Um, I actually kind of observed it quite close up. And actually, this is a good example of the genders being reversed in that sense, because the Hillary Clinton campaign was incredibly rational, both what she offered uh, as her program, it was lots of five-point plans and lots of answer A to question A. Um, and also inside the campaign, there was an enormous amount of data. They had 160 data scientists in a building in, in Brooklyn, and they were producing incredible detailed reports of how, exactly what was going to happen in each state. Um, and meanwhile, uh, the sort of story goes and sort of the, the report that you read is that um, old President Clinton, Bill Clinton, a more intuitive politician, mm. <clears throat> uh, was not so convinced that everything was fine. Um, and he had, was anxious and, and has felt in his gut that despite these 160 PhDs with their slam dunk proofs that they were going to win by exactly this margin, he didn't feel so good about it. What's your reflection on that? Is, is, is that an example of where a certain type of rationality sort of got carried away? Mm. Uh, you, it's possible that they um, deceived themselves as to how rational their planning was, and there's a lot, a lot of re reason to believe that that was true, that there were things that they didn't factor in. Whether Bill Clinton's gut was a reliable indicator of that is kind of hard to tell just on the basis of that um, particular story, because we don't know all the times when someone's gut feeling uh, you know, was flat wrong. Uh, when, when it predicted that, um, uh, that uh, uh, a candidate didn't have a chance and they won or, or, or vice versa. And I suspect that if you were to aggregate the gut feelings and the uh, outcomes, that the gut feelings probably wouldn't have that good a track record. But again, that's, that's a speculation. I might, mm -hmm. I might be wrong. It may be that it's the kind of case where Malcolm Gladwell's blink holds and the fact that my gut feeling tells, suggests that the gut feelings don't do well shouldn't be taken as evidence <laughs> that they don't do well, uh, to, to be completely rational. Um, and of course, Bill Clinton, we don't know what went, whether it really was a gut feeling uh, or whether he had um, a number of very good reasons for it. And he was a highly cerebral president. I have met several, um, I, you know, I, I have seen him 
interviewed on subjects other than politics. I have, uh, I know both scientist colleagues at Harvard and uh, art scholars at, at Harvard who had occasions to talk to him and were just astonished by the, the analytic power mm. of his mind. Uh, so he's the kind of person that, if he had those gut feeling, or at least if he had that reaction, I'm not even sure that it was a gut feeling. Mm. Again, I'm, by the way, everything that I'm saying is speculation, so mm. I might be wrong, and 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 uh, and I apologize if if what I'm saying is wrong. But it's uh, these are the questions that I would ask upon just hearing that. I just wonder whether that kind of intuition that is built on experience. And you can't necessarily enumerate. You can't yeah. spell no, out the I logic mean, yeah, in a way that maybe there's a sort of algorithm that's even more clever than the kind well, that, of logic that, we can uh, spell. No, I, I, that is that is absolutely possible. That is that there are and, and indeed, uh, I discussed this in the chapter on logic. The step-by-step -step deduction by rules of inference from a set of axioms is not the same as rationality. It's one tool of rationality. Uh, that is optimized to attain one goal, namely working out the logical implications of a set of propositions. But there are other ways of attaining goals other than, than that, including, as, as you say, what we probably call intuition, might be the accumulation over experience of many probabilistic cues, which we might intuitively add up or aggregate, uh, that can lead to a impression that we can't, whose logic we can't articulate, but that is not based on just you know your, your you know, literally your gut. But we use the word gut to what we mm. might refer to is the aggregation of a lot of probabilistic cues, and that is after all the the nugget of um, behind a lot of contemporary artificial intelligence, the mm. so-called deep learning models actually uh, eschewed classic artificial intelligence methods, sometimes called GoFi for good old-fashioned artificial intelligence, the kind practiced in the 70s and 80s where you'd have an algorithm that would uh, actually have a bunch of factual statements and a bunch of rules of inference. Mm. And they proved to be kind of brittle. They would work in a very circumscribed toy domain, literally, sometimes literally toys, and then didn't do so well in the real world, just because the real world, there's so many hundreds of things that go into any outcome that uh, you, you'd be hopeless if you tried to deduce them exactly. Whereas if you kind of, each one pushes you a little bit this way, a little bit that way, you add them all up, sometimes that can give a statistically more useful predictor. So that, but that's, that's quite and a that big deal, be, yeah. um, isn't it? So it means next time I've got a big decision, if, my, if I've got a gut feeling that tends one way, and I'll be thinking, what would Professor Pinker be telling me? I'll remember what you just said yeah. now, that actually I'm allowed to follow my gut, because maybe it's a collection of, of aggregate experiences that I can't fully enunciate that may be more reliable than the argument I can say out loud. They, uh, well, they, they might be. Although, in general, when human intuition is pitted against a uh, real algorithm, and, and by algorithm here I don't mean an you know, all or none formula, like uh, 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 you know, a perfect checklist, but just adding up a bunch of weighted uh, and weighting a bunch of quantitative predictors. A very old and robust literature in psychology um, came to the conclusion that the formula outperforms the human. So just to be concrete is what that, that means. This is literature that goes back to the 50s, goes under the rubric of actuarial versus clinical decision-making, actuarial meaning according to a formula, clinical meaning according to the wisdom of a, a, an experienced practitioner. So just to be concrete, you know, let's say, how do you predict whether a, um, a criminal suspect will, will jump bail if he's uh, uh, released, or, or will he come back uh, and show up for his trial? Well, you can ask a you know, probation officer, a judge, someone who's a social worker, someone who's worked with these um, kids all her life or all his life, or you could add up a bunch of predictors. What's the age? What are the record of prior convictions? What's, is he employed or not? Uh, and there's, you say, well, 0.2 times number of years of education minus 0.3 if he's unemployed, etc. 
So what actually predicts whether the, whether the, the guys will, will show up for trial? And the answer is the formula every time, you know, by a lot. So now this doesn't necessarily mean that in your case of making, say, your own life decisions, that would be true. But at least the cases where we have pitted intuition against formulas, the, the formula usually wins. I promised that we would segue into politics. Let me deliver oh, yes, on politics. that. Okay. Um, you, this is a quote from the book. There can be no trade-off between rationality and social justice or any other moral or political cause. What did you mean by that? Well, that we, um, in any uh, political or moral or social justice cause is based on a certain understanding of the world, such as one group of people has been oppressed by another, that the cause of their disadvantage is that that uh, oppression, oppression, whether it's overt or covert, that it can be rectified by certain measures, be it reparations or uh, quotas or tearing down statues or renaming buildings. Uh, but those are all claims about how the world works, and they might be true or false. And it's rationality that, that uh, tells us whether they're true and, and whether we ought to pursue those remedies, because if they don't work, why pursue them? And just to be concrete, if lest that sound too uh, you know, heretical or reactionary or whatever, uh, you know, there, there are organizations of white men who say we're the ones who have been oppressed and discriminated against. Well, you know, are they right? If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at BlueNile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, it's Sharon, and here's where it gets interesting. Raise your hand if you want Salon Perfect Nails for just $2 a manicure. Yeah, me too. With the Alvin June Manny system, you can say goodbye to expensive services that take hours and hours and love your nails more than ever. I would know I've been doing it for years. Get 20% off your first Manny system with code PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. That's PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. Um, you have to use reason to, to, to answer that question. So do you feel then that in some of the movements we've seen in the past couple of years, that rationality is not being duly observed and that there's a sense that, you know, even, I guess on both sides of the political aisle, we would have to say yeah. that um, I mean, I, rationality I is, is being denigrated where it shouldn't be. Yeah, I think that that would be an understatement, yeah. Um, I, uh, one blatant example is that um, 
the, the, the habit of punishing people for their opinions is a way of disabling uh, our most powerful means of, of uh, implementing rationality uh, in the world, pretty much our only one, given that humans, as rational as they are, really do have biases and flaws. Uh, and that is, you try out a hypothesis, you see if it withstands scrutiny, criticism, ev uh, evaluation. If you're not allowed to broach a hypothesis in the first place, then there's possible solutions that you could never discover because it's uh, even considering it might be criminalized. So cancel culture, uh, abrogations of academic freedom and free speech are, uh, are irrational because they disable uh, mechanisms of rationality. Um, uh, the, the assumption that every difference between groups must be attributed to, to bigotry is a kind of irrationality and that it rules out a, a whole set of alternatives mm. uh, rather than testing them. And that among the people who um, use racism as the explanation for all uh, ethnic outcomes or, or sexism, there is a, a, a rather um, explicit um, uh, disavowal of the possibility that these, these ought to be treated as empirical questions. It's, you know, your data can go to hell. Uh, mm. This is not, it's not about data. Mm. But of course it is, uh, ultimately, in that there, if there's a factual uh, assumption, then mm. it ought to be supported. And they've even come after you. Is that, that's fair, isn't it? I mean, there's, there have been sort of cancellation attempts on you for yeah, various I mean, supposed transgressions. So you have first-hand experience of this. That's right. Although, um, you know, this is a kind of a, you know, diddly shit cancellation attempt. It was uh, removing a perk that you know, barely figured in, in anyone's life uh, to begin with. The, uh, this is a petition that I be delisted from a set of media consultants in the Linguistic Society of America, which no one ever consulted in the first place, <laughs> and that I, and that the, my distinguished um, fellow uh, designation be removed, which, you know, again, so I, you know, one less line in my CV, it's not the end of the world for me. The, 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 what made it, what I thought made it uh, uh, truly regrettable, deplorable, was the signal that it sent to, to other scholars who don't have my perquisites, who don't have tenure at a fancy schmancy university, who are put on notice, you uh, uh, breach any of the contemporary orthodoxies and forget about your career. Hmm. Uh, in, in my case, so for example, one of the articles of faith is that um, our society is uh, irredeemably racist and that it's gotten worse. Now, if you look at data on racism, uh, you could look at literally overt racism of the kind that really was dominant in certainly in American culture until recently, like should black and white kids go to separate schools? If a black family moved in next door, would you move out? Uh, do you think that the reason that, that um, blacks are less successful is because they don't work as hard? All of those statements of overt racism have gone you know, down, 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 and are kind of in the range of now of crank opinion. You get this, the same number of people say yes to questions like that as say yes to the question, do you think that a, a race of lizard people is secretly ruling the earth? Mm -hmm. uh, and you might say, well, of course, the only, all that shows is that uh, people know that it's uncool to be racist. Deep in their hearts, they're as racist as ever, but they just know not to confess that to a pollster. But if you look at implicit measures of, um, of racism, such as do people, how often do people search for racist jokes on Google? Uh, or if you look at measures like the implicit association test that my colleagues uh, Masumi Banaji and Tessa Charlesworth have, have looked at. They have data going back several decades uh, for these unconscious measures of implicit bias, found that, you know, that that's been going straight down. And it's not just opinions, do you think that um, it's okay for a black person to marry a white person, but you know, more white people are marrying more black people. So every, by every measure, racism has decreased. That doesn't mean it's disappeared. Uh, a decrease isn't the same as a disappearance, but that is anathema to a kind of woke ideology, and that was one of the uh, kind of uh, you know, accusations or articles of 
one, one of the thought crimes uh, for which this rather meaningless designation mm. was going to be stripped from me. Do you think there's been progress on that? Uh, when we last spoke, it was over Zoom in the middle of the summer of last year. Yeah. Um, and this had just happened to you. Since then, there was been, you were a signatory to this Harper's letter. There's been a, a lot of new kind of media outlets that have been cropping up and substacks. And do you feel like the atmosphere around the free speech issue is improving and that there's some momentum in, in the right direction? There, uh, there's a, a, a counterweight, and one of the organizations is called Counterweight. Um, there's, uh, there, there is some concession to uh, heterodox viewpoints in some of the major outlets, like the New York Times uh, hired John McWhorter as a columnist, the, the brilliant linguist and um, independent-minded heterodox mm-hmm. um, thinker. Something that it would be hard to imagine them doing a year ago. Nonetheless, after they you, sacked the editor of the comment pages a few months previously. Well, exactly. So, yeah. so it, it is a, a dubious uh, uh, overall advance. So, I, I'm not sure that there has been. I mean, there are kind of green shoots uh, in the form of these organizations, but there's still an awful lot of punishing and cancellation attempts. Just a couple of days ago, there was a. Um, uh, a professor of cinematography who was suspended because he showed the Laurence Olivier version of Othello in which he wore uh, dark makeup to play Othello and that was considered blackface and that was considered a firing offense. Mm. Um, so it's still going on. It's still going on and um, at least in the last year for which there are data, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education in the United States, which is a legal body that defends students and professors whose uh, rights to free speech have been illegally uh, abrogated. Say that that at least the last full year for which they had data, which would have been uh, 2020, there was a record number of uh, violations. Uh, So so the question is really, so the answer is no in terms of has there been progress? Are the mechanisms in place that might turn the corner? At least that there's some. We'll see if we do turn the corner. So what you've just said will we'll put you on the wrong side of a certain strand of opinion on the left. Uh, now let's see if we can put you on the, the wrong side of the right as well. Um, your final chapters are in, in this are punchy, I would say, and, and clearly mainly directed towards a certain type of conspiratorial Trump-adjacent think, way of thinking. Um, and you describe this idea that this, the, the blossoming of conspiratorial thinking and the kind of post-truth atmosphere that um, you think Donald Trump was in part responsible for fostering um, is a dangerous thing, um, and you think it belongs to the realm of mythology rather than reality. I, I, could you explain yeah. that for us? So it is a mystery how uh, people can believe you know, obviously, you know, barking mad conspiracy theories, such as that there is a cabal of Satan-worshipping cannibalistic pedophiles in Hollywood and Washington uh, that Donald Trump was on the verge of exposing uh, the QAnon. QAnon theory, yeah. or that uh, COVID vaccines are really a subterfuge by Bill Gates to implant microchips in our bodies so that he could track us all. Now, these are, uh, to say there's no evidence behind them would be kind of an, an understatement. And these are wacky beliefs, but the people who believe them are not psychotic. Uh, and you know, one, probably most of them hold jobs, you know, maybe not all of them, but they, you know, they keep gas in the car, and if the car breaks down, they can fix it, and they, they, you know, their kids are clothed and fed and got, got sent off to school on time. So it's not they're irrational across the board. Uh, but there is a zone of irrational belief that probably we're all capable of, of holding. And for me, an epiphany was a uh, report by uh, Hugo Mercier, a cognitive psychologist, that the um, Pizzagate uh, predecessor of QAnon, where all of this was happening in a Washington area pizza, one of the pizzeria, one of the adherents to this theory acted on it by leaving a one-star review on Google for the restaurant, saying, uh, the, the dough was incredibly underbaked, and there were some men who were looking suspiciously at my five-year-old son. Now, if he really thought that children were being raped in the basement, you'd think he might do something other than leave a one-star review, like call the, <laughs> call the police. 
Uh, and the exception that proves the rule is the uh, guy, I think his name is Edward Welch, who really did burst into the pizzeria with his guns blazing to rescue the children. Then he was kind of crushed to find there was no basement, there were no children. So he, uh, but he was the exception, who actually acted on it in a way that was commensurate with the, uh, the, the heinousness of, the, of the, the conspiracy. So the question is, people who believe in the conspiracy, in what sense do they really believe it? Is it that they uh, believe it in the same sense that they believe that there's milk in the fridge or there isn't? Or is it the kind of thing that um, it's, well, whether or not the Democrats are doing it, it's the kind of thing that they would be capable of doing. That's how evil they are. And so, yeah, I think they're, they're, they're doing it. You know, who's to say they aren't? Uh, it's almost a way of saying, you know, boo liberals, uh, mm. but stated as a factual belief. So it's interesting, and as a cognitive psychologist, this opened up the possibility, and I wasn't the first to have this idea, that we really have two kinds of beliefs. There's beliefs that we have about the, uh, um, our immediate experience, the, the cause and effect around us, and we need that, otherwise we, we, we couldn't keep food in the fridge because the laws of causality and the laws of logic are, are kind of, uh, they're, they're mandatory. You can't not believe in them. Um, Philip, uh, Philip K. Dick, the science fiction writer, said reality is that which, um, when you stop believing in it, it doesn't go away. Uh, on the other hand, there are these domains of, of speculation and thought where, until recently, you just couldn't find out. Like, what's the cause of fortune and misfortune? That kind of philosophical question. What was the origin of the universe? What really happens in the White House and 10 Downing Street and Buckingham Palace and the Kremlin and corporate boardrooms and at, 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 at Davos? Uh, you know, you can't know. And um, so any beliefs aren't things that are evaluated in terms of their veracity. They're evaluated in terms of uh, how uplifting they are, how empowering, how inspiring, whether they're good rallying cries that keep the coalition together, propaganda points that demonize the, uh, the other side, entertaining stories. And there are a bunch of domains of belief that I think fall into that style of belief, probably because until recently there were no ways of verifying them anyway. And they include uh, religious beliefs, you know, or the origin myths of religion, beliefs about deities that are <coughs> almost uh, explicitly not verifiable or falsifiable. You know, God works in mysterious ways. Uh, national founding myths, the, 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 the heroic saints and, and uh, uh, supermen who um, liberated our country or founded our country, where it can be very annoying when some real historian goes into the archives and exposes their, their feet of clay. We'd rather believe in, in, in the myth. Historical fiction, like uh, the, the Crown, where a number of uh, historians pointed out, well, you know, we had actually had no reason to think that Prince Charles ever said that. Uh, but the reaction of most people is, oh, don't be so pedantic. Mm. Maybe he said it, maybe he didn't say it. I mean, it's good television. Mm. Uh, but they, they sound great, some of these myths, don't they? I mean, they do. Yeah, exactly. That's, so, that's the problem. And the, the insistence that you shouldn't believe them unless they're true does, can feel kind of pedantic. On the other hand, that's probably a better policy. Uh, I, I quote Bertrand Russell, who said that it is undesirable to believe a proposition when there are no grounds whatsoever for supposing that it is true. And if you think that that is trite, banal, obvious, then you really are a child of the Enlightenment and a, a kind of unusual hyper-rationalist when it comes to the humanity as a whole. For most people, what he said is kind of a radical manifesto. Mm. Uh, people believe all kinds of things, uh, independent of whether they're true or false. And I think a lot of the uh, one explanation for how otherwise rational people could believe such outlandish things, especially in the realm of fake news and conspiracy theories, is that it's believed in, in a very different sense. Mm. It's believed in the sense that, well, Prince Charles could have said it. Um, it's believed in the sense that my enemies, whether or not they did it, it's the kind of thing they could have done. Mm. So that, that's good enough for me. So what's, I mean, what's the alternative, though? If, if, is, the, is the Stephen Pinker dream world one in which there is no mythology realm, in which these, whether they're religions or conspiracy theories, people just 
think about them less and less and they cease to exist entirely. Doesn't that feel like an mm. impoverished world? Well, not if, it's, not if it's consumed as fiction. And not, as long, not if we maintain the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the distinction between fact and fiction. Uh, if it's, uh, I don't care whether it's fact or fiction. I, if uh, if uh, you want to think that it actually happened, that's fine with me, then I think that is bad. I mean, I think we should use science rather than mythology to um, uh, ground our understanding in why people get sick, why people get well, uh, wh wh what's going to happen to the climate. Uh, I think that we should look at historians and uh, responsible journalists to tell us what actually, uh, how political decisions do get made, that, that uh, uh, if there isn't a cabal of... Uh, financiers and Jews that run the world economy, we should really know that there isn't. We should, and, and if the historians uh, say there's no basis for that other than um, anti-Semitism, then uh, mm. even if it's a satisfying myth to some people, we shouldn't believe it. So you wouldn't have any time for the idea then that some of these myths are true in a different sense. So you know, the religion is, a, is an easy example that people might not literally believe all of the tenets, but they feel that as a myth, aesthetically somehow, it gets at the kind of a, a deeper truth that they can't really enunciate rationally. And that's why they choose to suspend their more rational faculty for that, as you call it, background mythology. And probably that parallel does work for politics to some extent. Is, would you allow that for those people, maybe it's true in a, in a different way, and therefore it should be allowed? Well, uh, it should be allowed in the sense that things that I disapprove of should be allowed, that even if I was, <laughs> even if I you know, did have the power to outlaw them, I, I shouldn't, uh, for, because of another principle of you know, diversity, freedom of opinion, and so on. Uh, in, certainly in the realm of art, in the realm of myth, consumed as art and myth, then of course the... Uh, you know, the, the, the richer, the more imaginative, the, the, the better. Uh, but we shouldn't confuse fact with fiction, including religious f fiction, because uh, a lot of the mythologically grounded religious beliefs are not so innocuous, like God uh, commanded that, we, that, that, that uh, homosexuality is, is a capital crime and that gay people should be executed. That could be part of your founding mm. mythology, but that's not a good reason to, to hold it. Uh. Stephen, I want to bring in some questions from the audience. We have been going on for quite a while. Um, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, I'm going to begin with Tom Chivers, who is the unheard science editor and therefore gets uh, first priority. Thank you. Thank you, for your time. you were talking about Malcolm Gladwell and Blink and uh, this, the idea that you know, we shouldn't, in some sense, be rational. And I kind of feel that. that all those movements to do that, those ideas of doing that, you know, whether we should, uh, people be happier if we believe irrational things, all of them appeal to this, to, to a fun, to a deeper rationality. They say, you know, Gabriel Gabriel saying, we'll make better decisions by uh, using our, our intuition. But he's doing that by looking at studies which show that these are you know, yes. wrong studies. And I suppose I feel that, do you think that's just cheating? You know, they're, they're sort of, they're, they're always, they're always they're, they, we, we can show you that irrationality is good, but only if we use rationality to do it. Do you feel there's a sort of sneakiness about moves like that? <laughs> is Gladwell well, cheating? Uh, yeah, it's, it's um, you know, if, if, it's, if, it's, uh, if it's in service of denying that we should ever be rational, and then you, you, know, you, you lay down the arguments, that is a, uh, always the reason why we should doubt arguments against rationality. Namely, either they're made rationally, in which case they concede that rationality is the ultimate uh, criterion by which we should meet, uh, believe things, or if they say they're not irrational, well, you can just dismiss them. Why should I, why should I believe something for which there's no good, no good reasons? So yes, if it, is, if it is framed as an argument against rationality, it always loses, and I, and I do make that argument uh, in the second chapter in the book on uh, uh, rationality and irrationality. It's an argument that's been made by a number of philosophers that you re it's really incoherent to argue against rationality, to argue against objectivity, to argue that everything is relative, because if you make that argument, I could just dismiss and say, well, is that statement relative? 
And if the person making it says, no, no, it's really true that everything is relative. Well, if you just said that that's really true and that isn't relative, you just contradicted the claim that everything is relative, or that everything is subjective, or that, uh, that irrationality is a legitimate way of deciding things. Mm. So yes, in general, if, it, if, if instead it's that often human attempts at being rational in terms of step-by-step -step think, slow thinking are outperformed by gut feelings, uh, that narrower hypothesis could be true or false. That's an, it's an empirical claim. Thank you. Um, let's, let's get, I think this is Eric Kaufman. Really enjoyed the talk, and, and I, I just want to, well, the question is really, is religion rational? I just want to sort of lay out a couple of, someone who might make that argument might say, okay, well, there are studies that show that people who are practicing religious believers live longer and are happier. Is there not a sort of evolutionary and rational advantage to being religious? Yeah, so the, um, uh, the, whether there's an evolutionary rationale in the sense of having more babies, uh, would be by the criterion of evolutionary success, namely uh, predominating uh, over, over time. And that may not be the same as the criterion of what is the way to live that would uh, maximize values that we care more about, namely happiness, prosperity, uh, peace, safety, and so on. What, what maximizes number of surviving babies and what leads to the healthiest, happiest society, maybe different things. Uh, whether, but there are some data that suggest that the religious people are uh, happier and, uh, and um, healthier. Uh, the questions that that in turn raises are one of, of correlation versus causation, namely, do happier people embrace religion or does religion make people happier? And unfortunately, without a kind of randomized controlled trial where you have one large group of people and you somehow make them religious and another, you let religious, you see what happens after a few years. Sadly, we can't do that study. Uh, there are some data that suggest that the advantages of religion accrue not to the theological beliefs, but rather to the, uh, the, the, the sense of, of community that religion, and, and religion, religions have to be unbundled in that there are a lot of practices that kind of cluster together in religion. One of them is belief, say, in scriptures. Uh, and another is you, you get together with other people every Sunday and you, you, you sing and you uh, share food and you reflect on what's moral or immoral. And it may be that that component of religion is uh, A, worth preserving on rational grounds and B, what is responsible for the, the, the better uh, uh, lives of religious people. The data that suggests that might be true is that the atheist spouses of religious people get all of the benefits uh, of, uh, of religion, suggesting it's not the belief, uh, but rather the, the communal organizations. Have you changed your mind about something? And uh, is changing your mind a, a sign of uh, rationality? So changing your mind when there are reasons to change your mind is absolutely a sign of rationality, and conversely, uh, the personality trait of steadfastness, stubbornness, pride uh, is a very good way of being irrational. There's a quote attributed to John Maynard Keynes, falsely as it turns out, when, the, when he changes his mind on something, so the story goes, and he said, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? Now, it turns out he didn't say it exactly. Uh, probably Paul Samuelson did. But it is a, a wise criterion for rationality, and indeed, um, there's a, a, a kind of a trait, almost more of a personality trait than an intellectual trait of sometimes called openness to evidence. Namely, when the facts change, do you change your mind? Uh, people vary because there are some people who think that it's a sign of character weakness to change your mind. In the 2004 American election, notoriously, John Kerry was uh, accused of being a flip-flopper because he changed his mind on the war in, in uh, Iraq. Um, and that, and it is rational, obviously, to change your mind. Have I changed my mind? Uh, yeah, um, you know, but but all kinds of things. If I wanted to sort of cite one, um, say emblematic or dramatic case, between the time I wrote the blank slate on the uh, persistence of human nature and the better angels of our nature on uh, decline of violence, 
Um, I became much more open to um, movements for benevolent change, for, for, for progress, like, like peace movements, um, and further um, moving me towards sympathy for um, uh, international organizations, government regulation, when I wrote Enlightenment Now and saw graph after graph showing um, benevolent changes in things like deaths in car crashes, um, amount of particulate air pollution, um, uh, deaths from other kinds of accidents. I was kind of a skeptic of the nanny state and of safetyism uh, and of um, uh, social transfers, and I think I became a little less libertarian uh, seeing data on uh, the, the fact that these weren't just a way of feathering the nests of bureaucrats, but they really kept people alive who otherwise would have died. Great. Um, there's a lady on the edge. Um, so this question comes from our Zoom chat, and it's from Paul McDonnell, and he asks, is there a danger that our increased reliance on data and expertise is leading policymakers to adopt an instrumentalist view of citizens that embeds what is, in effect, an appeal to authority, aka trust the science, into policy decisions. He says, it seems that there is a recent authoritarian turn in public policy, see COVID restrictions, especially in Australia, that could be the product of this. Yeah, so, oh, um, well, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that in a well-functioning government, policy should be driven by the best data on the state of the country and better still on outcome studies of what works and what, what doesn't. Um, but no in the sense that trust the science scientists they, or, or, or trust the public health officials because they're a kind of a, a priesthood, a kind of oracle, uh, uh, should be rejected, both because the scientists are necessarily fallible, uh, and if they are treated as infallible oracles, then as soon as they make a, uh, a wrong recommendation, which is inevitable because we start out ignorant of everything, and uh, then they'll be uh, dismissed uh, across the board as an unreliable oracle, whereas the only reason we should trust scientists and the only extent to which we should trust scientists is that they deploy the methods that will get to the bottom of, of the truth of something. And that puts, I think, an onus on scientists which they haven't adequately um, uh, accepted of showing their work, explaining the basis of their recommendations. And likewise, for public health officials, what we have not seen enough of is instead of making paternalistic pronouncements, this is what's best for you, uh, to make, uh, to, to open up the cost-benefit analysis. Sadly, they may sometimes not be a cost-benefit analysis in that they, uh, especially there's a built-in tendency of bureaucracies to be irrationally risk-averse because they get blamed for the failure but not credited for the success. Um, but nonetheless, we'd be better off if the, if their incentives were more aligned with the benefit of the country and if the basis for their reasoning in terms of trading off costs and benefits were articulated. And this would be both in terms of the costs and benefits of a policy, that is, how many lives are we willing to sacrifice to have businesses uh, open up sooner, uh, and in terms of their own consequences of their own uncertainty, namely, we might be wrong as to whether masks work or not, just to take a, a, an example. Uh, how bad would it be if we recommended masks and they don't work? How bad would it be if we didn't recommend masks and they do work? That's in the realm of, of uh, one of the chapters of, of my book called Signal Detection Theory or Statistical Decision Theory. I mean, that sounds fancy, but it can easily be articulated. And that kind of trade-off should be public as well. Uh, and so I think it's a disaster if the motto is trust the scientists. It's rather find out what uh, the truth is. Scientists uh, are best equipped to do that, and here's why. Here's why. Here's what they do that should, that ought to command your respect, because if you were trying to figure it out, you would use the same methods. 
That, I think, is a great note to draw the conversation to a close on. Uh, humility uh, from scientists, I think everyone would uh, welcome that. Uh, thank you to our online audience for joining. Uh, it was great to have you. Thank you for you in person. That was really great that you came. But most of all, thank you, Stephen Pinker, for a wonderful hour. Thank you, Freddie. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you acast powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend the Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.